Fun with Failure is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hi, welcome to Fun with Failure, a podcast where we laugh with and at you about your flaws, fears, and failures. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrero. Let's have some fun. Our guest today is Brian Formato. Brian is the founder and principal at Groove Management. Brian is an accomplished speaker, writer, and executive coach who has had a positive impact on individuals and organizations around the globe. With the success of Groove Management, Brian started his second company, LeaderSurf. LeaderSurf is a unique leadership development program that merges learning to surf with becoming a better leader. Hi, Brian. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, great to be here, Alexis. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you and hear more about Groove Management and what, what inspired you to start that business. I'm also very excited to talk to you about LeaderSurf because I love how failure is embedded within and baked into the process um, of learning how to surf and learning a new sport in general. So to me, that's such a great way to teach leadership because it, it really forces people mm-hmm. out of their comfort zones and forces them be, to be vulnerable, which is such a critical part of authentic leadership. So before we begin and really dive, do a deep dive into your flaws, fears, and failures, I thought we would start with a lighthearted. So what's your superpower? What's something that you're just really naturally good at? The one thing that I kind of pride myself on is being a creative problem solver. And what that means is that I don't look for the easy solution to things. I look for the out of the box solution. I like to ask why not? And I like to be provocative. And so um, I think my friends, as well as people that I work with have always said, hey, if we need a creative way to do something, ask Brian. Um, it's not always the right way, but it's <laughs> a way that um, can be more fun and more entertaining. Nice. That's awesome. So what about a kryptonite? Do you a have kryptonite. a kryptonite? For me, it's patience or the lack thereof. Um, I am a immediate gratification kind of person. And maybe it's the New Yorker in me, but I hate waiting for anything or anyone. So what is your definition of failure? I think of failure just clearly as learning and that the only place where failure is really failure is when you don't learn from a mistake. So failure is about making mistakes, but it's about being able to kind of dissect the mistakes and make adjustments based on them. Have you always been that way? Have you? It sounds like you are a an optimist, a glass half full person. Have you always been that way? A hundred percent. Yeah, I have always been a um, a positive person. I've worked in a number of jobs that, um, on the surface, I hated, but I went to work every day, kind of saying that it was going to be better than the day before, and I found the good in in the jobs that I had. Um, in hindsight, it's easier to say, "Wow, that was not a good place," um, but I'd bring a positive energy and try to make the most of it, and so. Um, I think that that's kind of a contagious energy that I bring to the people that I'm around. Do you have a favorite failure of someone else's? Yeah, I do. And this is kind of an interesting and crazy story. So um, Those are my favorite kind. Okay, good. So I, I met this guy, and a kind of serial entrepreneur um, in Oslo, Norway. And um, his name's Kim Hogason. And Kim um, from his early 20s had always had this kind of dream of, you know, hitting it big and being a big successful entrepreneur. And so what he had kind of set out to do was he said, I have this goal of earning a million Norwegian kroner, which is about $200,000 annually by the age of 30. And so he'd kind of stuck that out there and he'd started a bunch of businesses and they weren't going all that well and so forth. But 
he was so committed to this dream of like, you know, I want to make it big so I can buy a nice car and do all these things. And it was really about living in the material world. Um, although he was, you know, in a socialist society in Norway where that's not as big of a deal. Um, and so he was like, I need to up the ante because I really want to do this. And at the age of 28, he got a tattoo on his pinky finger um, of a perforated line and said to himself that if I don't make it to a million Norwegian kroner by the age of 30, I'm going to cut my finger off. Oh, that is bold. Yeah, it's pretty bold, right? And that t- tattoo is his daily reminder of it. So he's telling the story. Cut to, he cut his finger off. Yeah. No. He, he cut his <gasps> finger off at age 30 because he wasn't there. He hadn't made it. And he said, it hurt more than anything you could ever imagine. I said, no, I'm kidding. Of course <laughs> oh it did. Gosh. Right? Um, he rushed to the hospital. Didn't bring the other part of the finger along because he was like, he didn't. Wait, he cut it off himself? He cut it off himself. He got a big pair of like pinking shears or whatever. And oh. Homeboy is not well. Yeah. So they sewed up his nub. And um, and that was that. He didn't even bring the. He didn't even bring the no, finger. You no, would think no. that if he had this plan this far in advance, he would have also planned yeah. to. Right. Although I guess if you're going to cut off your own finger, you're not going to sew it back on. Right. Like that does that yep. defeat the purpose of cutting think off so. your own finger? So he's up telling this story with his like handout and his nub, and just sitting there pointing at you. Yeah, pointing at you, and it's kind of awkward. He said, "I never realized how important that was to doing just about anything." gripping things and so forth until after it was gone. He said, what makes the story worse is that within six months of cutting my finger off, I hit it really big with this business that I have called WeClean. And it cleans, you know, it does commercial cleaning and apartment cleaning. And I think some like, you know, uh, short-term apartment rental cleaning as well. And so he more than succeeded at his dream. He just missed it by a few months. And now he, he has no... by that much. Yeah, by that much. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I need the visual. I know. I'm holding up my pinky finger. Yes. It doesn't really work on the radio, I'm sorry. But so he says, you know, his story and his lesson is he achieved that goal and he was less happy than he was when he was in his 20s and had it out there as something. And so his failure was he failed because in the way he describes it is that I was chasing someone else's definition of success, mm. not my own. Yeah. And now he's, you know, in his late 30s and he's got no finger and you know, he's had success with his business, but his personal life and other areas of his life are not fulfilled. And so he's changed what his definition of success is. And, and I think it's a story that we can all kind of take away, which is that this idea of misery is chasing someone else's definition yeah. of success, not our own. And it's really stuck with me. And I saw him a couple of weeks ago and you know, I can't stop staring at his finger every time I see him. But you know, he's like, you know, it's a beautiful thing because I taught myself this lesson Yeah, is the way that he views it. And so he's got a really good perspective on it. And, and he, he doesn't go around telling that story all the time. Um, but it's a pretty powerful story about you know, a failure, which was a failure to see what he really wanted as his goals. How many servings of fruits and vegetables should you be eating? This is a 60-second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina. The magic number is five. Three servings of vegetables and two servings of fruits have been connected to lower risk of certain cancers, stroke, and heart disease. 
fruits and vegetables are a great source of essential vitamins and minerals in addition to plenty of fiber to maintain a healthy gut and reduce the risk of colon cancer. And they're high in vitamin C and potassium. If five servings seems like a lot, consider starting your daily vegetables with your first meal of the day. Snack on fruits and vegetables instead of whatever your current go-to snacks are. Use vegetables as the main ingredients in other dishes like baked goods and chili. And whenever you can, get fresh vegetables, especially in the summer when they are in season. This has been your 60-second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. It. Staying informed is hard. There's so much information, it's hard to find content that speaks right to you. And local radio has left Charlotte behind. What if there was one place where you could find news, entertainment, sports, music, food, and comedy created in and all about the place you call home? You're listening to the Charlotte Newsmakers Podcast. The Charlotte Podcast. This is John. And this is Miller. There's good all around us. Let's hear about it. Welcome to Do Good Charlotte. The Yelp Charlotte Podcast. Welcome to Fun With Failure. This is your man, Colin Cole, and I'm bringing to you the Players Report. Welcome to the Comedy Zone Podcast. All right, we're back with Prime After Prime. The Advent Coworking Podcast. 1K, the 1,000 second podcast. Another episode of Cheers, Charlotte. Thanks for being with us. My name's Brian LaFontaine. This is You May Have Seen. This is the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina, changing the way Charlotte listens at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So I want to spend a little bit of time getting into your professional story to figure out, you know, what your background sure. is, yep. what led you to start your own company. After college, you know, the idea kind of less mine, more my family's was, oh, you get a job in a prestigious company and you grow from there. And so um, I got a job at Bear Stearns, which at the time was one of the most prestigious investment banks. And I was in an international management training program. And it was the worst job I've ever had. Because um, in school, I'd studied kind of not just business management, but leadership and teamwork. And this company was about who you could step on to get ahead. And I found that my colleagues that I was working with um, didn't want to collaborate on anything. They just wanted to take credit for whatever they could and get recognized by the higher up so that they could climb the ladder faster. Um, you know, and each evening, if you stayed past six o'clock, you got dinner. So everybody, it was about FaceTime. So stay past six. If you stayed past 8 o'clock, you got a black car service home. So basically every day you'd stay until 8 o'clock at night so you get the car service home. And then the next morning you'd be back on the subway platform going back to the job that was the grind that you hated. Now, if you stuck it out long enough, um, you made a lot of money. And you could, you know, many of those people retired in their 30s. Um, for me, I made it a year, <laughs> not yeah. even. And I just hated it to the point that I said, this isn't what I want to do. And went back to, so what do I want to do? Um, I applied to a number of consulting firms because I really was like passionate about, hey, I want to do this work. And they said, well, but you need an MBA to do this work. And the MBA program said, but you need work experience to get an MBA. So I was kind of in this catch-22. 
So I ended up getting a job at Golden Books, a children's book publisher, um, as an HR assistant. And it was great. I got really to, you know, get my feet wet in kind of the HR space. And about six months after I started there, the company, which at the time was called Western Publishing, was bought by um, kind of a, a media mogul named Dick Snyder, um, who had been the chairman of Viacom, or not chairman of Viacom, sorry, the chairman of Simon & Schuster Publishing that then got bought by Viacom. And when Viacom bought them, they kicked him out. And so he wanted back into the game. And he and Barry Diller, another media mogul and stuff, bought Golden Books, this cherished kids' book company, and he moved into the offices and started, you know, doubling down on staff and other things. And I got to know him and we hit it off. And so it really raised my trajectory quite quickly. And I got to do some cool stuff and we did some acquisitions and I got involved in that. And so it was a really kind of good job that I loved. Um, and ultimately, after like four years, I left because my wife had graduated from Columbia Business School and her job opportunity was in D.C., and so I was the trailing spouse, and we moved to D.C. Ultimately, as I graduated from American University, though, I had to do a project for um, kind of a pro bono project. And most everyone did it for a nonprofit. Instead, I chose to do it for a company that I thought I would want to work for. And that company was The Motley Fool, which is a financial education company. At the time, they had um, 30 million unique visitors per month on their website. And this was back like when AOL like owned oh, wow. the internet. And so they were kind of the darling of kind of the internet um, around finance. And I'd written to them while I was in grad school and said, I'm out to prove that some good things are free. And I want to offer you some free consulting services. And I guess the brothers that started it took notice. They had me come into the office. I met with some other people, their head of HR gave me dirty looks like you're going to come in here and steal my job. Um, but ultimately they brought me in and I did a project around their culture and about how to develop talent there and hit it off to the point that they made me an offer. And so, um, I joined their company, their head of HR to this day is one of my best friends. And so we, uh, super hit it off. What's interesting is that this was in kind of 2000 and then 9-11 happened and the internet bubble kind of burst. And we went from having 400 employees down to having 87 employees. Wow. And my job and his job, we were the two Bobs from Office Space. We were the guys that had to tell everyone that they no longer had a job mm. um, through three different rounds. And so what's amazing is there's a good kind of failure story in this. At the beginning, the first round, we were advised by some of our investors have security on staff and make certain that, you know, nothing bad happens and, you know, here's how you do this. You invite some people to one meeting and others to another meeting and, you know, get them out the door as quickly as possible. And it was a train wreck and people were angry and those that were staying behind were upset. And after that, we said, we didn't do this our way. Let's do it our way for the next round. And instead, what we did was we invited the entire company, everyone remaining to one meeting the two brothers, Tom and Dave, got in front of the group and said, we failed you. We grew too fast. We were irresponsible with what we did. And we're the ones that screwed up. But what's going to have to happen is that we have to let a number of you go today. If you're one of those people, here's what happens and here's what you get. If you're not one of these people, here's what happens and here's what you get. And it was total transparency. And by the way, we're closing the office for the rest of the day. And everybody's welcome to go to Murphy's Tavern where we're going to have cocktails. Hmm. Smart. Washington Post showed up trying to get some scoop and some negative press. And all they got was, I love this company. I love the way they treat us. 
when they got down that's to a, that's 80s, a great lesson for, yeah, for organizational management how to do it right right yeah, yeah. transparency um, is always really important absolutely and so by the time we got down to 87 people um in that third round um i ended up putting my name on the list and i laid myself off um and okay, that was why because the head of hr had more tenure than i did we were somewhat redundant when you got down to that size company um, making a play for why I should stay probably in the long run while it would have served me well probably didn't serve the company well mm. and I felt like I was marketable enough and I could do something else and so I left and to this day um, I have a great relationship with the company I've done other work for them um, I've been a brand ambassador and said great things about them I've been an advisor to them so I have no ill will about it um, and I was fortunate because I got a job with Time Warner Cable not long after that, and that was probably my favorite job I ever had. Okay, so tell me why Time Warner yeah. was your favorite job. So I spent a lot of time traveling around the country to whether it was Houston, Texas, or Akron, Ohio, or um, Minneapolis, et cetera, and getting to know, you know, I'm here from corporate, I'm here to help. Ha, ha, ha. Usually <laughs> corporate guys, not not so welcome. Yeah. Um, but in this case, you know, I built rapport with these people, and my favorite thing to do was I went out on truck rolls. And what that meant was that I would go meet a technician, get in the truck with them, and I'd go and install cable for the day. And the amount of stuff that they would tell you oh, yeah. was fantastic. And I became the voice for that back to kind of senior leadership. I went back. I told the CEO the story of a cable installer that I met in Portland, Maine. And the guy is driving the truck down the street, and I'm in it with him, and we've probably been together for a half an hour. And this, you know, elderly lady's crossing the street, and the lights is green for us, but she's crossing the street, and he's waiting and waving her on, you know, and she's like taking her time getting across the street. And I said to him, "Did you just stop for her because I'm in the car? You know, you be yourself. Don't you know? Because I would have stopped for her anyway. If you hadn't noticed, I'm driving around in a moving billboard, mm. and every move that I make." influences how people feel about our company. I was like, you can't buy that. Like, how do you get employees to get that? Yeah. And for him to have said and that. And to care. Yeah. And so that, I was able to bubble that all the way up to the CEO. And, you know, he got recognized for that, which was kind of cool. You know, they had been using actors for a lot of the TV advertising. I was like, we've got 30,000 employees. Put them in the ads. Yeah. People will want to see them and they'll get excited about seeing their friends and their peers. And so, yeah, there was a number of things like that. But uh, yeah, um, but no, the, the fact that I love technology and so this is a time when high-speed data and all that was just coming to its own, built some really cool leadership programs, got to interact with whether it was kind of the technician level people all the way up to going to some red carpet events and so forth, concerts and things because of the fact that we had arenas and other things. So it was just, it was a sexy, cool job. What yeah. inspired you to start your own company? Yeah, so... Two different things. So when I was back in grad school um, and doing kind of this pro bono consulting thing um, where we had to create a project for a company, we had to create a name for the company that we were going to represent to do this. And so my name for my company was Groove Management that I'd come up with is because we learned about this theory called appreciative inquiry, which is this notion that rather than focusing on what's wrong, to ask what's right. And to focus an organization or an individual on, back to your superpower analogy, yeah. what are your superpowers? And so I came up with this idea of it's your groove. It's what you do that's better, special, or different. And everybody has a groove. 
something that comes more naturally to them. But so many people struggle with identifying what it is. And so if I can get individuals or companies to identify their groove and play to their strengths, they can do so much more than trying to unlearn or get better at the things that they're not very good at. Yeah. And yeah. so that was kind of the premise and then that kind of backburnered. And it was like, well, one day maybe I'll come back to this. But so what happened was I was in this other role. I was working for the head of media sales who was kind of this larger than life guy, New Yorker, um, and he was polarizing. And he and I had a great rapport, but his boss didn't like him very much. And although he'd been with the company for a long time, they ultimately asked to part ways. And so when he left, the new person that came in to run the media sales group said, Brian, why are you in Charlotte? You're one of my direct reports. All my direct reports are in New York other than you. I need you in New York. And they gave me an offer to move to New York. My wife had a big job here as well. And we're like, we're not moving to New York. And so I got packaged out and said goodbye to a company and a job that I really loved, but it was, you know, kind of bittersweet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know that I'd call it a failure, but it was definitely a learning. Um, sure, yeah. Not everything of, is a failure. Yeah. And so at that point, you know, I kind of decided, well, what is it that I'm going to focus on? Where am I going to go? And so I went back to, okay, so maybe this is the time to do this group management thing and start a consulting firm. And so, you know, I put the shingle back out and, you know, blasted everyone I knew and said, here's what I'm doing. And I heard crickets. And the first six months of having my business full time was miserable. Um, I just had time on my hands and nobody getting back to me. Um, and I found what year, what year was this at this point? Like how long? Ago so it's five years ago. Okay. Uh, a little over five years ago. Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was really kind of torturesome to, you know, cause I knew that I had so much good stuff and so much good experience, but what I was finding was that the people in my network, um, you know, this whole idea of like hiring your friends or hiring people, you know, just felt kind of, I was having trouble with it. And then I figured out something to ask people. And I realized that networking isn't about who you know, but who they know. And I changed the question that I asked people. And I said, instead of, well, I'd love to do business with you, Alexis, who do you know that I don't know that I should know? Yeah. And all of a sudden, these people started introducing me to other people. And the way the introduction went was, yeah, I know this guy, Brian, he does some really awesome stuff. You should talk to him. And so it came as an endorsement. And that started the wheels in motion. And that's how kind of my groove management started to to build and grow. So I do love how you said the first six months were terrible. Yeah. I just want to thank you for saying that. Because I'm <laughs> sure that there are a lot of people out there, right, grinding it out in the mm-hmm. first two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, however many months yeah. struggling. Because it's hard. It's hard when you jump out there on your own without any structure, without any guidance. So I really appreciate your transparency on that. So tell me a little bit about what Groove Management actually does. And then I want to get into LeaderSurf and how LeaderSurf came after Groove Management. Sure. So uh, Groove Management, so I say our mission statement is helping individuals and organizations to maximize their performance by focusing on their strengths. So it's a lot about helping people and companies to figure out what do they do well. And so we do workshops around strategic planning. We do a lot of team building work. One of the things that I do with senior leadership teams and companies is I give them each a blank index card and I ask every member of the senior team to write down one thing that makes their company better, special, or different. And you'd be amazed. The bigger the company, the more um, misaligned Mm. they are. 
And so part of it is if your leadership team can't articulate your competitive advantage, what about the people further down in the organization? They're going to be so confused about where you're going and what you're what you're all about. And so helping companies to become really crystal clear on you know, their why, not just the what, but their why. Why do we exist? Um, and then core values and so forth. So I do a lot of work in that space. What's been really fortunate is that work with a number of um, venture-backed companies that are you know, backed by some of the high-flying companies in Silicon Valley that are looking at high-growth companies and how do you grow responsibly. And some of that is how do we make certain that we've got the right set of core values? How do we make certain that our leadership team is aligned around what success looks like? How do we prepare for an IPO or for a sale? And so um, I've been tapped by a number of CEOs to come in and help those growth mode companies. And that's been some of the most fun and rewarding work um, that yeah, we've gotten to do. And so then how did LeaderSurf? Yeah. So LeaderSurf is a different company entirely. So how did LeaderSurf and when did LeaderSurf spring yep. up? But yep. you do them both. I do them both. So um, three years ago, well, it started four years ago that I had this kind of idea where I was asked by one of my clients, uh, I ran an emerging leaders program for them. So um, they had a cohort of people that were up and comers in their company. And at the same time, yeah, and that was going really well. The CEO um, said to me, our senior team could use some work. Like we all have our MBAs. We've been together for a number of years, but we, we're not that good at interaction with each other. Um, could you build a workshop for a few days to give us some management or leadership training? And I said I could, but my thought is that if I put you guys into a classroom and have you role play with each other, and do some of this work, it'll be like sending you a karaoke bar at 10 in the morning and having the bar closed and asking you to get up and sing. It'll just be socially awkward and you'll never live it down. I said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, I think we should send each of your team members to a public program where they're going to be interacting with people from other companies. So there's a bit of a paradox in that while you think that around strangers, people would be more guarded, the truth is they're going to be more open and willing to try new behaviors with people they don't know mm. than people they do know because they're not going to be judged by people that they'll necessarily ever see again. And so they said, great, what do you, you know, we'll pay you to help figure out where to send them. And so I started getting the syllabi from all these different programs. I went to all the major universities and a number of other kind of think tanks and so forth. And... I started looking through the syllabi and they're almost all identical and nothing has changed in like 30 years <laughs> since when I was an undergraduate and was like learning about kind of how um, how these programs were built. And so most of them were at a conference center under fluorescent lights with a professor that, um, no offense to professors, None taken. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that you know, may have written a book. Um, probably hadn't been in the business world or in the workforce for a long time, but was kind of a career, um, you know, higher ed person. Yeah, insti um, institutionalized in the ivory tower. Yeah, so yeah. they had that knowledge, but they didn't have real world practical experience. They'd never been on a truck roll. Right, Right, yeah. and so, um, you know, you do a couple of assessments, you'd, you know, work through some cases and so forth, and, you know, you'd spend a week at this program. And so I was like uninspired by it and thought there's gotta be a better way. We sent people to these programs from that company. They came back and they said, I may have gotten a nugget or two, but the biggest learning and the best thing about the program were the people I met. And it wasn't while we were there. It was in the evenings when we go back to the hotel. We'd have dinners together or we'd sit at the bar until late at night 
having drinks and talking shop about yeah, you know the, what we love and what we hate about our jobs and sharing secrets and war stories and yeah, so those forth. informal yeah really meaningful moments and i was like huh so that, that, that was, it's like it happens in between the real work yes. like the real content happens in between yeah so what if yeah what if you flipped the real work and that work and kind of created an environment and a program that was more based on the use of self the people in the program rather than having a teacher you have a facilitator and the facilitator's job is to make certain that there's learning that occurs but doesn't have uniform results and this is where um, I have this different philosophy about leadership versus management right management is about achieving um, predictable results whereas I think leadership is about unpredictable results it's about things that haven't been done or haven't been thought of it's about pioneering and so if you want predictable results then you train people and you train them to do the same things and to do them the same way but to develop leaders is about developing individuality and so to do that you can't build a program where you want everybody to leave with the exact same result you have to have it where each person leaves with their own result and so started giving some more thought to this started talking to some instructional design people and people i know and started thinking back on well what are the things that i love and from the time I was a little kid, I've always loved surfing, and it was because it was not a New York City thing. I had a skateboard, and that was my favorite possession as a kid, but the fact that I learned to surf as a kid, it taught me respect. I learned from a very early age that you can't control the ocean. I was like, huh, can't control the ocean. Well, what if your people that work for you are like the ocean, and you can't control them? So all you can do is learn how to leverage them and how to put yourself in the right position. And so I think of surfing in this metaphor of you don't catch the wave, the wave catches you. You have to put yourself in the position to harness the power of the wave. So if you're a leader, you don't manipulate your people. You put yourself in a position to help make them better. And so there's a lot that you can do with that metaphor. So it's like, what if I could teach people to surf? Because the other thing with surfing is that even the best surfer in the world wipes out every time they go in the water. Yeah. And so if failure isn't an option, it's a requirement. Wow. Lesson number one in surfing is how to fail. We actually on the beach teach people, okay, if you're going to fall, don't fall head first or foot first, do a starfish because you're going to make less of a splash and you're not going to hit the bottom. Mm. And when you come back up, come up with your head, hands over your head because you're going to protect yourself so you don't get hit in the head with the board. Imagine teaching business leaders how to fail at work. This is how you do it. This is how when you screw up because it's going to happen, this is how you do it. And it's okay to screw up. Just get back up and try again. And this idea about fail fast, fail forward, and so forth that people talk about. And when you look at how innovation happens and it's an iterative process, well, surfing is the ultimate iterative process. And so teaching business leaders to surf teaches them to embrace vulnerability, to become more resilient, to learn about themselves. And so this idea started to kind of nest and then started thinking about, well, where would you do this? Hawaii sounds awesome, but you know, who's going to send people to Hawaii? It's too far away. Well, what about the Caribbean? Well, it's too inconsistent. And if, hey, maybe California kind of companies would like this, that's too far from there. Central America kind of makes the most sense because it's like four hours from just about anywhere. Um, and so originally thought, yeah, maybe Costa Rica. The good news is that I ended up going on some sightseeing kind of you know scouting trips with my wife and so we went to Costa Rica we went to Nicaragua and we went to Panama yeah what is your typical group size that you take six to ten and okay. they're all from different companies we kind of do that on purpose back to that idea of being comfortable with you know 
seeing other people in their bathing suits or not, you know, being vulnerable in front of people you don't know. Um, But we've also had a number of conversations with companies about sending people as a cohort from their own company Mm -hmm. um, or doing it as a sales retreat or doing it as, you know, a C-suite retreat um, because we can build customized content in addition to the daily surfing lessons, in addition to the aid project. Um, We end each day going down to the beach and watching some of the most amazing sunsets you'll ever see over the Pacific um, with an activity that we call sunset reflections. And each person, I believe we all learn something new every single day. Um, But if we fail to articulate and capture it, then it escapes us. And so as the sun sets, each person, we sit on the beach watching the sunset and say before the sun rises again, everybody has to have shared at least one thing they learned about themselves or the world they didn't know when they woke up. We do that every day, and it creates this kind of rhythm and pattern for how we are and how we're being more aware of our surroundings and what we're learning. Um, people have reflected that that's a really cool part of the program and something that they'll then come home and try to do. We've had you know people that uh, struggle with weight. We've had people that you know aren't exceptionally good swimmers, and it's all kind of a challenge by choice, and we're very deliberate in getting people to push out of their comfort zone but not into their panic zone. Yeah. And we use certified instructors for that. The surfing is really, it's an hour and a half of each day. So the way I look at it for those companies that are skeptical about, oh, I'm sending somebody on a surf trip, a round of golf takes a lot longer than what we're spending on this. And I know a lot of companies invest a lot of money in playing golf. And I don't think golf does as much for you as this does. Right? And we start kind of the program, when we do orientation, I ask everyone to introduce who they are and where they're from and so forth. I also ask them, to answer the question, when was the last time you learned a new physical skill? People struggle with that question because the older you get, the more you sit in your comfort zone and the less willing you are to try things that require that you feel awkward and that, you know, make for those pictures I like to look at it on Instagram. So Yeah, and self-conscious yep. and afraid. Yep. And it, yep. it really, surfing is one of those things that really can, re- or can yep. really trigger people. Yeah. So it levels the playing field if you have people coming and don't have this, yeah. the, the experience where we can sort of all start from the same place. No, it's true. Well, and as I look at the struggle of what it takes to learn how to surf, uh, I constantly remind myself of the struggle that I'm having with the business because while groove management in year five has hit its stride and doing well, every time I run a leader surf program, it is a struggle to fill. I have a very high... Um, kind of return rate of companies that have sent people that say, oh, we want to send somebody else. But having the same companies every time in there doesn't really, you know, it helps, but I'd love to continue to diversify and get new clients and new companies sending people. But getting past the optics of them, sending somebody to Costa Rica for a week, they're going to be on a surfboard and that that's leadership development. It's a different paradigm and companies struggle with it. And so I look at it much like any disruptive business you know, it's the naysayers are going to win out until you hit a critical mass and a tipping point. And so with 30 plus uh, people that have gone to the program now, I've got 30 plus brand ambassadors out there that all can, you know, sing the praises of, Hey, it really works. And this is good. But I still, you know, have a lot of sleepless nights as I get closer and closer to the deadlines for each of the programs saying, Oh man, we got to get a few more people in here so that we can fill this program. Um, And I look forward to the day when, you know, it's like a few strokes and you're up on the wave. And I'm not there yet. It's a lot of paddling right now. If you have advice for people who are afraid of failure, what would it be? Right. So you've talked about 
you've had this really mm. long career with ups and downs mm-hmm. and successes and failures and starting these companies. So you've been in the space and had to figure out what failure means and how mm. to fail and also teaching people how to fail, yeah. right? which is something that is so strange to think about, but then but it's also like a, a light bulb goes off. Like, yeah, why don't we learn how to fail? That's such a critical skill. So, and there's still so much fear around failure, yeah. right? And admitting failure means admitting defeat and admitting defeat means admitting weakness and admitting weakness means whatever. Yeah. So what advice do you have for people that are afraid of it? Yeah. So where does fear come from, right? Fear, I think is, it's something that starts in your brain and it's more often than not, it's fabricated. Um, and it's Fa- not, yeah, fear is false evidence appearing as real. Yeah, F-E-A-R. exactly. Yeah. So getting people to um, reconstitute what that really means and what that looks like. Um, somebody told me this kind of cool story about this um, South American kid who was with his grandfather, and his grandfather was telling him this story about how we're all born with two wolves in our head, right? And these two wolves are constantly fighting it at each other. And they're, you know, fighting to the death. And the kid says to the grandfather, so which wolf wins? And he said, it's quite simple, the one you feed. Mm-hmm. I was like, huh. So if you feed the fear, it will paralyze you. But if you actually starve the fear and instead continue to push yourself baby steps outside of that comfort zone, you'll become more, you'll stretch the zone. And the zone of comfort becomes further and further. And where are we best and where are we learning is when we're outside of that comfort zone. And so I make it a habit to push myself to do things that I feel a little awkward about all the time. And I do it because I feel like it's taking your medicine. It's like it's going to make me better. And I almost never regret having done it, whether it's signing up for an event or going to something or saying I'm going to go speak at something that, ooh, why did I sign up for that? And then, yeah, you get the butterflies going. But then once you've done it, you know, it feels so empowering. And so I look at people that have had success without the struggle, and that success is not as sweet as those that struggle more. And you look at all the data on lottery winners as an example. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, God. And a year afterwards, they're less happy. I mean, I'm still going to play. And, yeah, but, but, but why? <laughs> it destroys people and destroys lives. I feel like I would be okay, though. Oh, I just you, feel like I could still make it despite the crushing amount of yeah. evidence to the contrary i'd like to at least try yeah. to but see I if go i back can beat to the, the why, but i go back to the why is it that this happens to those people and it's because easy money easy come easy go yeah it's a house of cards yeah it's gonna and come down. so this idea of those things you know that you fight hard for i mean when i finished that first leader surf program and i watched the people get on the bus to go back to the airport and i stayed for a couple of days I've never felt that elation and that high as I did when I went back over to my room and sat in the hammock for a half an hour. And I was like, the adrenaline was like shooting through me. And I was like, I felt so amazing because I'd done it. I had a vision for something. I executed it pretty flawlessly. And I was like, I had a picture of what it was going to look like. And it was identical. And it's like, that doesn't happen very often, especially for me. Usually things play out a little bit differently. But this was like, you know, picture perfect and so i was like okay this is yeah this is somebody telling me that what you're on to makes sense and i truly believe that if you don't believe in yourself you can't get others to believe in you and you know i I kind of passed the point of getting embarrassed and you know 
feeling like, wow, you know, people are mocking me. Um, and so at this point, it's like, I have no shame. If this is what I want to do. And I believe that it's the right thing to do. I'm going to keep doing it. Well, that's great. And it also sends, um, sort of sets an expectation and shows people a model of how to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. of okay, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm afraid and I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. One of the reasons I named this Fun With Failure is because when I work with clients, it's one of the philosophies that I have and one of the approaches I take is, okay, I'm challenging you as your coach. I'm challenging you to go out and fail on purpose. So if something's too scary, especially if you're afraid of public speaking or something like that, the next time you introduce yourself, mess up your own name (laughs) and just see how it feels or mess up your own introduction and just see how it feels. And it's like exposure therapy, right? The yep. more you do it and the more you get used to it, the less scary it becomes. Yep. And so then, yeah, failure then becomes sort of a badge of honor. If you can rack up, you know, how many, fa- how many, fa- how many times did you fail this week? Oh, you only failed three. I failed five. <laughs> right? Because over <laughs> yep. and over again, then you're going to be getting better and better and better. And it becomes less scary over time. Yeah. But there's something in our society that makes it seem like it's a faux pas and it's not allowed. Yeah, I know. Well, that's why I want to create this podcast is to sort of, you know, pull the curtain back and show that it's okay and that it's a completely normal and a completely natural part Mm -hmm. of the human experience. No one gets out of this world without having failed in multiple ways. Yeah. yeah. So let's celebrate them. Yeah. Let's just, (laughs) let's talk about them. Let's learn from them and let's like, yeah, let's go out and have some fun trying to do it. Yeah. So well, when, when, do, when, when do we get you on the surfboard? <laughs> oh, um, that's a very good question. I would, lo- I would love to come to that program. Cool. I've never surfed before. It is absolutely a bucket list thing. So, yeah, I would love to figure that out. All right. We'll make it happen. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming out. This has been a real treat um, yeah. and sharing all of your fantastic stories with us. Good luck with your consulting company with Groove Management and with Leader Surf. And uh, yeah, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you out there. Thank you, Alexis. Sure. Yeah. You've been listening to Fun with Failure. I'm your host, Alexis Carrero. Until next time, go have some fun. You can follow us on Twitter at Fun Fail Podcast. And if you have questions or suggestions about upcoming guests, sponsorship opportunities, or just want to say hi, our email address is fun at funwithfailure.com. dot